Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is, what day is today? Today is Tuesday, March 7th. We are here live. We are on a new equipment setup for mobile here, so I'm hoping this is working and you're hearing my voice and it sounds reasonably close to our studio setup. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I've got uh, got a piece of equipment here that's not much bigger than uh, a very small paperback. We're running the whole show on it. Um, Aaron just said it sounds okay for now. So uh, my line's good. We'll bring in the team from Pittsburgh Power here in just a minute. We'll see how they sound. And then we'll, uh, we'll also be getting to callers today. So phone lines are open. Let me check. They are. Um, we'll be getting those calls here in just a little bit. So line them up. 855 950-3835. The reason we did not have a live show yesterday was not because of the equipment. It was because of our travel. I got waylaid on the very first uh, first morning on the road. So we uh, we took off on Friday, had plenty of time to get down here. We thought we'd pull in on Sunday, except we woke up Saturday morning. Uh, we were still in Oregon, um, right near the Siskiyou Pass there, and the pass was closed. When we woke up, they were having a little snowstorm up at the top, and they closed the pass. So we hung out for most of that day, and towards the end of the day, they opened the pass, and we were able to get through, but it was pretty late in the day, so we didn't get many miles put in. So we ended up behind, really didn't have uh, a place to do the show from yesterday because we were in the van, just really not enough room uh, to do it reasonably well in the van, I think think what we're going to do is get a trailer so when we're if, if we do use the sprinter to travel i'll uh i think i'm going to build a studio in a trailer so we would have had that option but we're here today looks like uh everything's working so we'll find out here in a second when we try to bring in bruce bruce good morning let me try that again there we go. Uh, oh, hold on one second, Bruce, because I can barely hear you. Try that again. Okay. Should I turn my volume up? Yeah, you're going to have to turn yours better. up and let me. I can turn some stuff up on the board here. Try it again. How is that? That's better. Uh, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of Okay. Yeah, that should be better. I'll wait and hear. I've got people monitoring for sound. They'll let me know. But on my end, it looks good. So go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> Well, we uh, had a tough trip to get to Du Bois, Wyoming, because of the road closures in Wyoming. Uh, 287 in Texas from Rollins up to Wyoming, up to Du Bois, was shut down. And uh, Josh Schaefer from Turnaround Transport and I, we were caravanning, and uh, we went through a whiteout, a whiteout that you just couldn't see uh, put in front of you. I, I wanted to stop, but I knew he was behind me, and so you can't stop, <clears throat> and it was tough. I have a light blue pair of Maui Jim sunglasses, and they made it a little bit better. I could actually at times see the yellow line, but we were going about the five miles an hour through that. Then we get to Rollins, can't get up north on 287, so we turn around and beat it back to Laramie. 
and spent the night there and then on to Cheyenne and 25 north through Casper. So 445-mile journey was almost 1,000 miles. Wow. But two days to get there and 12 hours to get back and 12 hours of nice and snow and some clear road. But we had a great time up there. It's always nice to spend time with owner-operators on a casual basis. It's nice to see the guys relax and they have two overstuffed couches and two overstuffed chairs and a big fireplace and we just sit around and we talk sleds, talk politics, talk trucks. And it's nice to see these guys relax because, you know, in their everyday life, there's not, not much relaxation. Yeah. You know, we're in the snow. The snow was, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say. snow was really deep. Was it? That's good. A lot of fresh yeah. snow. You get off the sled. Yeah, a lot of fresh snow. You get off the sled, you fall down to your waist, <laughs> and you're still not on the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. Uh, that's good, though. That's good. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, um, it was a great event. It would have been better if we had sunshine. Unfortunately, we had gray skies. And, but uh, back in Colorado now, and we have sunshine. <laughs> Okay, so the three of us are going to talk about what do you do first when you buy a used truck? And this was Leroy's uh, suggestion. And so I made my list, and it was the first, supposed to be the first five things, but I can't stop at five. And mine was once you get the truck home, you set the overhead, install a new torsional damper and the mercury-filled engine balancer. You change all the fluids in the engine, transmission, power steering, differential, and front axle. You pull all the wheels, check bearings, and brakes. You do the diesel force clean to clean the DPF. You get the truck on the max mileage fuel borne catalyst. If you have a Hawkeye report done, you adjust the clutch, install the safety plus. And the reason I say the safety plus is uh, I got a call yesterday. Another guy blew a tire and uh, demolished the truck. And I understand another guy swerved in this car, and uh, the, when he went off the road, the truck burnt, caught on fire, and they couldn't get him out, and he ended up burning to death in the passenger seat. Oof. So the Safety Plus is a great item to, to keep things like that from happening. And then my last thing is you scrub the interior with Murphy's oil soap. I like the smell of a clean interior that's just been scrubbed with Murphy's. It has that nice odor to it. So that's what I have. That's my list. And, and naturally, there's also buffing, cleaning the, the aluminum and buffing and waxing the entire truck and getting it ready to go on the road. So it'll be interesting to see what Pete has and to see what Leroy has because uh, we did this all independently. Got it. All right. Well, I certainly like that list. That was a good list. Um, I, I looked away for a second reading something. Did you cover... Uh fluids if we're past 500,000 miles? Transmission I said change all fluids. Okay, got transmission, okay. fire steering. Good. And now if the person has records and show you that that was just done, right. it's a different right. story. You, you don't have the records. You know, the one thing I like to remind people of, it's really common. Um, and, and fleets, a lot of the trucks owner operators are going to buy are going to be fleet trucks being put out on the market for the first time. So the fleet buys them, 
they typically will run, fleets will run trucks somewhere between 400 and 600,000 miles, depending on what's going on with truck prices and fuel prices and all kinds of different metrics. They, we've been going past that. Uh, so one of the things people have to remember, if you buy a fleet truck that's past 500,000 miles, they did not change the fluids. They never do. That's their model. Why would they? They know they're getting rid of that truck and changing the transmission and differentials doesn't matter to them. So they don't do it. But then a lot of people buy the truck assuming that's a 500,000 mile service. It must have been done. If you if you bought it from somebody and they can show you the records that it was done, fine. If it's a fleet truck, you can almost guarantee it wasn't. Right. Some people say, well, I want to put it on the road first and make some money and then do this. And no, that's not the answer. No, you're better off doing as much as you possibly can before you put it on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, friend- there was a time when we used to really talk about all the different individual strategies for fuel economy, all the things we were doing. And I would tell people, look, if you, if you want to prove this to yourself, you can only do one at a time. If you do two modifications for fuel mileage, we never know what did what. So if you want to know that each one's working, you have to do them separate and track it. And then I started saying, you know, it's nice if you want to track it, but we have proven these things enough times. We know what they do. They work. So really, you're better off just doing it all at once before you ever put it on the road. That way you're saving the most fuel possible. You just have to trust that we've done the work. These things work. We know they work. Now, we could say, like, if you you were buying a 2012 and newer ISX to do the exhaust manifold and the intake manifold, but I was trying to, I was making more of a generic list. If you're buying a 2002 or 2003, say, NBN CAT, the first thing we want to do is change the manifold and turbo and uh, get rid of the bridge part of it. And also, my good friend Mike Robinson from Upper Marlboro, Maryland, who is a very astute caterpillar mechanic, um, he reminded me of... Just ignore that. That was operator error. I'm sitting here with my new equipment, and I wanted to try wiring something, so it was a little neater, and I hit the button. So I thought we were going to have a commercial break. <laughs> now, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. I was just sitting here thinking um, back in 2007, April of 2007, when I got the first show, when I got my first day on the air live, I had a room full of equipment and miles of cable. It was so complicated because we were doing all of our own phone lines and like we are now. Um, but now instead of a room full of equipment, I've got a piece of equipment I can hold in my hand. Doesn't even need to be plugged in. It's battery operated. That's my mixer. Um, that, my laptop, and a headset, and I can do the show from anywhere. Well, wait a sec. You started in 2007? Yeah, April. I didn't, didn't I start working with you in 2008? No, I think it was. Um, I think it was that summer, almost right away, because I only did the show from Florida for... I think two weeks 
I had set up a whole studio in Florida and, and did the show for two weeks, and then I decided to move to Colorado. And we built a studio in ATBS's building. They gave me the cabin up there, and yeah. they we. That's but, where I first met you. Yeah, but I, I'm that's, pretty that's sure that we started in April. But I'm thinking you and I were at the Las Vegas Truck Show that year. It would have been like June or July for that show, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think okay. it was right away, early on. Wow! Wow! Okay, wonderful. Yeah. So Mike Robinson had said, reminded me, he said, you know, you, you, you haven't been talking about your mufflers, the mufflers that I designed years ago, because most everything now has DPF on it. So, but the older trucks, the 2003 and older, or even the A-Search 2007 and older, um, I think this was a single staff truck Mike was working on, and he put the muffler on, and it was a 40 to 50 horsepower gain. Wow. And if it was 50, yeah. that's a full gear. That's a full gear on like a 13 or an 18 speed. And when you gain that much power because of something as simple as a muffler, that equates to fuel mileage. So, you know, Bruce, I, I was just thinking about something when you were saying that. You know, this the the looks of our exhaust systems are actually pretty deceiving. So, you know, somewhere out there, and we're we're talking pre DPF because the DPF created the the most back pressure we're going to create. So it doesn't matter trying to free up flow anywhere else in the system isn't going to work. So we're talking pre DPF. But think about a truck. It might have been a, a fleet spec, and they put a weed burner on it. Um, several fleets did that. And you think, oh, you know, that's fleet spec. That's awful. And then you look at the big classics, and we've got two big exhaust stacks there. The airflow must be awesome. But those are the worst. With all the twists and turns mm -hmm. they make to get back to those stacks, the airflow's awful. That weed burner's actually much better. There is a reason why people love their 379s and W9s and 389s, and they have to have the stacks on. My good friend, Carl Kellner, has retired, and he's going to Florida from just south of Buffalo, and his 379 that has 264 gears, and everything that we have, he has on this truck, and it's stunning. It's a beautiful truck. 2WS Caterpillar, and the first, he sent me 95 pictures of it, and Jeff Nelson from Turnaround Transport's buying it, and, and we were looking at the pictures out at the snowmobile conference, and it was just breathtaking, but he's got brand new stacks for it, and they weren't on. And as soon as Jeff saw the first picture, he said, where's the stacks? <laughs> Peterbilt has to have stacks. Right. <laughs> so, I, know. I, I said, know. I said, man, I don't know if Carl made this a weed burner or not, but uh, as we scrolled through the pictures, he showed some new stacks he had to put on. Yeah, okay. So that's... If, if you're buying a 2003 and older or 2002 and older truck, the list is a little different. You know, it includes the mufflers and things like that. But, All right. And, and, you know, as I was driving my 2016 Ram, there's only 18,000 miles on it pulling a trailer. And I'm shocked at how free that 6.7 liter Cummins runs with the catalyst in it. Uh, I, I know the engine's spotless inside because it's had catalyst since we came out with it. It runs so free. You actually have to hold it back. And uh, 
I was thinking of you as I was crossing 25, heading towards Casper. There were some long, slightly down grades and then long uphill grades. And I said, I just want to see how fast I can top that mountain, pulling this trailer with four snowmobiles in it. I hit the bottom at 90, and I topped it at 80 on 12 pounds of turbo boost. Wow. That's impressive. That was really Yeah. 12 pounds. That thing just loves to rip uphill. If but it's I, amazing. It's so quiet. You hardly feel the engine work. It's like the new trucks. And it's not not like my old 95 when you rolled in the throttle. You knew it was coming to life. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's not quite like mine then after Leroy got a hold of it. If I look at my throttle, I'm at 30 pounds of boost. <laughs> I have to sneak there up on go. it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's uh, well, let's see what Leroy and Pete have on their list. Let's do that. Let's. Uh, good morning, guys. All right. Don't everybody Hello? jump in at once. Oh. I guess I should identify who, so you don't talk over each other. Uh, Leroy, I think you were first last week. Pete. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. How are you today? Good. What's on your mind today? So you know, I made my list as well, and I made. For a truck that was under 500,000. Again, there's a list of five is a short list. I mean, there's a lot that can be done. And again, is it over 500,000 miles? Is it an older truck? Is it a newer truck? But what I was looking at would be a boost leak. You know, that's the simplest, easiest thing to do. If you have a boost leak, you're not going to get fuel mileage. Performance, that's a no-brainer. Um, the Hawkeye report second. Uh, third, I did a dyno with the gauges in the manometer. And the reason for that would be if you got a truck, even if it's a low mileage truck and blow buys high, that could indicate an issue, which then you might need to put money back into the truck for other reasons other than upgrades. Actually, if we dyno with the gauges on it, the manometer, we can check fuel pressure, we can check the boost and, hey. and get an idea. Oh, it's low on torque, there's something wrong. There might be an injector issue. Um, so that was number three for me. Uh, number hey, four Pete, being can overhead. We, can we go yeah. back to that one real quick? Mm -hmm. Of all the things we're, we're talking about, that one, you know, the manometer test, I would put that one aside for a second. Everything else we expect, you know, we, when we buy it, we expect there are things we're going to upgrade, replace, adjust. Um, that one, though, I've always said if you have a high mileage truck and you're not sure of the history and oil consumption, that one should be done before you buy it. Because if it, need, if, if it fails the manometer test, we have too much cylinder wear. I don't want that truck at all. Right. Or or you know, offer less to help right. recoup the cost right. of rebuild. Yeah. If, getting you know, and let's talk about that strategy for a second. If it comes right down to it, if I'm buying high mileage trucks and there's a good chance it's going to be in-framed, which is changing now. These newer trucks, we're just not in-framing much of anything anymore. But in the older trucks, if, if I would rather buy it when it needs the in-frame rather than after it's been done. I don't want, I really, I don't want to buy somebody else's work when I could just negotiate a better price on a truck that needs that work, prove it with the manometer test. This thing needs an in-frame, negotiate a better price, and then be able to control that work yourself. Plus, it's a little suspicious if someone just had an in-frame right. and now, and now they're selling it. Like, That's uh, a good point, too. Right. Invested yeah. all this money, now you're getting rid of it. Yeah. What's wrong? And what's the in-frame? 
you know, what I consider in-frame and some other shops are two different things. Correct. You know, it, a it, set of cylinder kits, reused the heads, reused the injectors, and said, oh, I did an in-frame. Well, not really. Right. <laughs> and, and the work that they did, did they really do it right? We see a lot of that Correct. go on. You know, they don't do the, the counterbore right. They don't get a lot of things right. And then we have problems pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing is oil analysis. And again, I'm kind of going at it a little different angle than I think Bruce did. Uh, I'm buying a truck and making sure it's right uh, before I go into it, get into it as far as, okay, now everything's right. Then I can start adding the, the OPS and the manifold or whatever else, the damper it might need. I want to make sure everything's right first. So I would do an oil analysis in that top five. You know, I'll jump in there since I opened up the can of worms there. So we're talking about all the things you should do after you buy the truck and we're going to plan for these and you should have the money set aside to do as much as you can ahead of time. But there's also, and I wrote all the details on this are in my book, in my program. Uh, there's a bunch of inspections I do before I buy the truck. Those are as important or more important so we don't end up with the wrong truck that's going to cost us a bunch. And it, like I said, the manometer tests, we know the condition of the cylinders. You just mentioned an oil sample. I want to be able to do that before I buy the truck. We could find out injector problems, all kinds of issues from an oil sample, excessive wear metals, bearing condition. Uh, but... You can't decide today that you're going to go out and look for trucks and expect to find a truck that you can do an oil sample on because every dealer I've ever seen changes the oil. So the way I did this when I was looking for used trucks is I had at least one or sometimes two or three salespeople around the country sometimes, and I would just send them an email. Here's what I'm looking for. If you come close to this, call me. And I, I don't want oil changed. I don't want the truck washed. I want to see it the way it came from the auction or wherever you got it. And then you can do an oil sample. So I would do four things. They're all listed in the program. So manometer test, oil sample, pull the, the full ECM report. Leroy, I'll let you talk about how that may be different on different models and what kind of things you can look for in there. Um, and then I have somebody who knows what they're doing do a really thorough inspection of the front end. One of the things I found with trucks, fleets don't take very good care of their trucks anymore. They realize they can buy them, run them for a half a million miles, do almost nothing to them, and it doesn't cost them anything. The repairs end up from neglect end up later. The second owner ends up with all that. But I've found that if a truck wasn't taken care of, if the services weren't done often enough, you'll find that wear in the front end. If you have excessive wear on the front end at four or 500,000 miles, the truck wasn't taken care of. Right. <laughs> so, Pete. I feel like we you, Are you good? Hmm? Yep, yep, I'm okay. good. And like I said, that's great if we can do that ahead of time, but if you're buying a truck off a bank or whatever, yep, right. you can't. All right. Yeah, and that's, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me if I buy trucks at auctions. Very rarely. And that's part of the problem. You can't get any information on trucks you're buying at auctions, and you can't do these tests. And so you're, you're kind of buying blind at an auction. So 
I won't say I haven't done it, but if I buy a truck at auction, it's a really, really cheap truck that I expect it to have problems. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Leroy, what you got? Well, it's like, it's funny, the more we talk, we could almost have a whole other show on just what you could do for as far as a pre-purchase inspection. Right. Right. Because a lot of stuff that we're talking about, you could you could check before you even right. bought the truck. Yeah. It, uh, like, like we're talking about visual inspection. There's a lot of things you can see without any hand tools or, you know, anything really. Just yeah. sort of just walking around, just looking at it. Well, here's like, here here's another one. If uh, if a truck has brand new steer tires, I hate that. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what kind of shape the front ends in. If we had all kinds of wear problems, so when I see new steer tires, I kind of figure it's got a front end issue, or it's just out yeah, of alignment, right? It it makes me think that somebody told me one time that no one sells a truck that's making money. So <laughs> I would go into a buying it or just when I purchase a truck or if I'm going to look at one, I'm thinking, well, why did they sell this? It, it either has issues. I mean, how many times does somebody just sell the truck to upgrade? I mean, that happens, but I feel like a lot of the reasons somebody's getting rid of a truck is because it has issues. You're right. That tends to be the trigger. You know, we might say we're going to keep a truck for four or five or eight years or this many miles. And, but when it comes right down to the real world, we usually start thinking about getting rid of it when it's going to cost us money. Yeah. If you have a truck that has 400,000 miles on and they get eight and a half, nine miles per gallon, why would you sell that truck? Right. You know, oh, everything on the lot, I just assume right off the bat, okay, what's wrong with this thing? And my first thing is visual inspection. So that's all the stuff that we sort of already mentioned and more. One thing I could say you could do without any hand tools is when you crawl into the truck and you look at the after treatment system, I've seen quite a few Volvos where the def doser is. There's a flex pipe right there and you can see the def crystallization building up on the outside of the, the flex pipe and it's like leaking down almost if you see any sort of death leaks i mean you're, you you got to know you're in this truck already for thousands of dollars right off the bat yeah good point right um also well the hood's up i mean just look for simple things like there's coolant blown all over right from the radiator cap right i'm not buying that truck, you know um, things like exhaust leaks. If you see, you know, gaskets blown out, soot all over the side of the engine, soot on the one box. If you see, you know, not if it has a one box or DPF, if you see soot traces around any of that kind of stuff, just know right off the bat, you might be into for big expenses right off the bat. It could just be a gasket. It could also be the DPF plug and the pressure has to go somewhere. Maybe it blew out the gasket because the DPF's ruined. Right. So... There's a lot of things you can do and just look at right off the bat. So here's here's something I came up with when I was actually buying a lot of trucks myself. We have a habit, and this, this goes for any time you're making a big purchase or a big decision and you have a lot of options. So think about things like um, if I wanted to lease my truck to a carrier, that's a big decision. We've actually done some math. It costs you about $7,000 for an owner-operator to leave a carrier go to another one. So it's a big decision, big money, and you have lots of choices. Uh, when we buy trucks, it's a big decision. They're expensive. We have lots and lots of options. I started realizing that as human beings, when we have a lot of options, 
we make bad decisions because we go about it all wrong. We, when we set out to say buy a truck, since that's what we're talking about, we go try to find the truck we want, correct? Right. Yes. And if you do that, I guarantee you, you'll find the truck you want pretty darn quickly. It won't be hard at all. You'll be able to talk yourself into almost any truck you find. It's the right color. Oh, look at this. It's got an awesome seat. I've always wanted one of these. You'll find a reason to talk yourself into almost any truck. I started taking the exact opposite approach. When I look at a truck and identify this is a potential truck, this might work for me, I immediately start looking for reasons not to buy it. Anything. It's got yeah, a poor oil sample. It's got, um, it does have a, a lot of blow by on the manometer test. The front end doesn't look like it was taken care of. I don't know about the history. It's got a lot of miles. We're not sure if there was an in-frame or not. There, there, I, I will look for any reason not to buy it. And as soon as I find that reason, I move on. And people are like, well, but, but what if that was the only reason? That's enough. I found a reason not to buy it. I'm going to move on. When you find the truck that you can't find any reason not to buy it, now you know you have the right one. I feel like that could be dangerous if, you know, everything has issues. You know, like we just said, like, you know, there's a lot of trucks out there so, being sold because they have issues. And you may so, never find anything. So I hate to, I know that people will say that. And this is where we have to say, okay, use a little common sense now. After you've looked at six or seven or 10 trucks and you've eliminated them all, maybe look and see if your criteria is a little too tough. You know, it had a little right. bit of too much silicon on an oil sample. Well, I should be able to look at that truck, figure out where the dirt was coming from. And maybe that's not that big of a deal. But I will wait till I get about 10 trucks in before I start loosening up my criteria. And people say, well, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. And you have to be willing when you find that truck that you fall in love with, but you get through one of these inspections and something doesn't look good, you have to be able to walk away. And people say, oh, but I already spent all this money on this test and that test. I know, but the whole point of this is to make sure we get the right truck and this is a truck you're going to keep for years and hundreds of thousands of miles. Do the hard work now. So if you go through 10 trucks and you're doing this work and, and you can't find anything, well, maybe your criteria is just a little too tight. Loosen it up a little bit. But you're still far better off than rushing in and buying trucks the way most people do it. And I mean, to your point, somebody might complain, well, I paid for an oil sample on this truck, you know, or this test or that test. Well, the money you spent on that could potentially <laughs> be saving you tens of thousands exactly. of dollars. Yeah, it might be wasted money, but right. that's way better than right. the alternative. It's kind of the cost of doing business. Exactly. Yeah, it I mean, is. This is right. churches. If you're a one truck, you know, kind of operation, this this is your life. This is you it. Know, it. That's it's right. Work. It's work. Yes. A, the wrong truck uh, for an owner-operator can put you out of business. Well, for sure. And, yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of trucks that we see that, you know, that it's they, the they're probably truck. bad decisions. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's a whole other discussion, people buying the wrong truck for their operation. You know, it's, it's like the kid delivering pizzas as, you know, a big block Chevelle. Right. You know? Might not be the best thing for delivering pizzas. Yeah. Know? Or <laughs> gas alone. Yeah. Or a Tesla. 
I, I seem to run across an awful lot of these people that work in the gig economy where they're using their vehicle like Instacart or Uber Eats or Lyft, or DoorDash and all these. And they seem to think they have this attitude like, oh, but the Tesla, you know, my fuel's free. And uh, yeah, it, it's also a 60 or $70,000 vehicle that I, I could deliver those same groceries in something that cost one tenth of that. Yeah. I got an Uber one time uh, in Indianapolis and the guy had a Prius and he was like talking about how great this thing was. But he also mentioned, well, I did have a couple thousand dollars in putting new batteries in it. Right. You know, just their right. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah. So that's a whole nother discussion of picking the right truck for your operation. But Correct. to continue on, my next thing was put the OPS on and start doing oil samples right off the bat. So let's say you bought this truck Right off the bat, just start doing oil samples. You can log it. You can keep track of it. You can catch things early. It's just a lot of benefits to it. That would be the second thing that I would do. I'm going to jump in there with the story, too. Uh, I kind of outsmarted myself on this once. I thought, you know, I'm not putting a truck on the road till it has an OPS on it. This was way back when. Uh, so I actually talked to the factory and we arranged it so it was installed while it was coming down the assembly line. And they did a beautiful job of it. I mean, it looked factory. All the bright hoses and cables, everything's tied up nice. Um, except for the fact that they mounted it wrong. <laughs> they mounted it so low that we were blowing uh, a gallon of oil out about every 400 miles. Yeah, don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> if you're going to yeah. put it on, right. <laughs> yeah, make sure it's on right. And I mean, some engines, I would even go as far to say that having bypass oil filtration is, is crucial. Yeah. The CR-only engines, they're pumping 35 to 45% of the intake charge at some areas of the map is EGR gas. And none of that burns wow. very well. Yeah. So you have to think about how much soot goes to that engine. I mean, we've, we've lived through it. We know that even the... You know, the DPF only, EGR only trucks, those both had a lot of soot issues. I'd say in the 871 and 870ISXs, they had a lot of issues with the cams because there was too much soot in the oil. So some of these engines, I think it's absolutely crucial to put bypass filtration on. I agree. I think it's it's kind of crucial for every truck just because it makes so much sense. But you're right. There are some trucks you just really don't want to skip it. Yeah, there's some trucks I, that... I mean, it's good for every engine, but there are some I would right. I would not put it on unless I put it on there. Yep, good point. So my third one, which has been mentioned already, is about having the DPF cleaned. So this does two things. For one, you, you need to ask or check for yourself what the ash load is. Now, the ash load and the soot load are commonly confused. Some people say, oh, you just do a regen and you clean the ash out. No, that's not true. A regen cleans up the soot. It does not clean up the ash. So when you have too much ash in your filter, it's worse performance, less fuel mileage, and it's going to continue to cause you more and more check engine light. So I personally say if your ash load is above 40%, I like to do it early. Some people like to wait. I say if it's above 40%, get it cleaned. Um, you can do that. Or if it's bad enough, you need to get it replaced. Also, while you have it out, that's a good time to have it inspected. Are there any cracks in it, but especially on the outlet side? Sometimes you can see cracks ahead of time, and you know those pieces are going to bust out. 
So when those pieces break and they fall down, they go in your SDR or the decomp tube, things fall apart. So while you're in there, check everything, visually inspect. I just, I hammer home visual inspections. I think it's the best thing that you can do. I agree. And owner operators should just get used to doing good visual inspections anyway, that that's something they should be doing on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. I mean, if once you're an owner operator, you're not a company driver anymore. You, you can't just think, I mean, it's your truck now. Everything is your fault. It's your truck. You have to take responsibility and start looking at this stuff yourself. Yep. Yep. You know, we, um, one of the things we did at the CMC, people absolutely loved it. When they would check in with their truck, we had Dale Howard, who was uh, very well qualified. Dale had been an owner operator and he also worked in um, law enforcement doing vehicle inspections for years. So um, he would teach people how to do the uh, proper pre-trip, but he would also teach them what law enforcement was looking for on the different levels of inspection, which is that's the best way to approach it. You should just look at that truck every day the way they're going to look at it if they pull you into the scale. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's shocking how many drivers are never taught that. We're really bad in the industry about actually teaching that. A bunch of fleets will tell you, oh, no, we have a program. We teach everybody. Yeah, let's grab five of your drivers and and ask them to show us how to do that and watch how little they know. I mean, I think I would even... I would even need to go through that. You would. Even mechanics... Owner-operators that have been doing this for years, if you haven't been shown exactly what they're looking for in that inspection, you can't know it. I mean, it's just something you need to be taught. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll get customers coming here and they'll say, oh, yeah, DOT checks for this or they, you know, check for that. And it's like, oh, I didn't know they did right. that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, <laughs> you know, it's a very specific list and criteria and we would teach them exactly how they were doing that and and we would just say this should be your pre-trip yeah no it just saves you time and money that's what this this whole list is all about Um, right and and you know what i'll tell you something else it's a whole lot better to be able to roll through the scale confident rather than look the other way try not to make eye contact hope they don't pull you back there because you don't know if you can pass or not it's just a whole lot better to be able to look at your own truck and know that you're going to pass. What's, what's your quote, Pete, for uh, self-confidence? Uh, one important key to uh, success is self-confidence. An important key to self-confidence is preparation. That's exactly right. Yes. You know, there's another good one for preparation. I've always liked this one. Because if you've been successful at just about anything in life, there's a group of people that will say, well, you got lucky. Ah, well, he just got lucky. You know, you, you got lucky you got that contract or you got lucky that that happened. Or, But what I've found, and the, the quote is, um, luck is what happens when um, preparation meets opportunity. Which is I've heard that one, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. It, the, the more you prepare yourself, that way when opportunity shows up, you're prepared to take advantage of that opportunity, and then people will call that luck. And I added to it. So the, the quote was, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And my addition is opportunity always exists. So all you have to do if right. you want to be successful is just get prepared. Always do the hard work, right? There you go. After the journey. That's right. That's right. 
But, I mean, speaking of journey, one thing I thought of where you were talking was this isn't just like a one-time thing you do when you buy the truck. You don't just look over everything right. and then I do it again. This is a sort of routine thing you need to do all the time. Yes. Maybe with the list should be the first thing you do, like things you should do anyway. Yep, absolutely. So my number four is it's, it's a little strange, but I think it would save a lot of time and potentially money. So I my number four is begin saving or purchase sensors that you may need for your truck in the future, not when yours aren't bad, just have them on you. That is because a, I like this one. I'd like the because we, sometimes. Yeah, we don't normally yeah. talk about this. I think this is a good one. So go ahead. I mean, they're small. You can put them in the bunk. It doesn't take up a lot of room. But if you're broke down and your truck puts you in a severe inducement, which is just means that the death system is unhappy and it derated you to five miles an hour or it just stops you. And the roadside guy comes out and he says he checks your code as you need a knock sensor. Oh, okay. Well, I got to go back to the shop, which is 200 miles away or wherever it is. And I got to order one and it'll be in in two days. If you had one on you, you could just say, hey, can you just put this in for me? I Plus, like that. You one. might even get it cheaper than he gives you. Yep. He might just try to add 30, 40% onto it. Well, I got it cheaper already. Do you, do you have sensors that you like to replace at certain times? rather than wait for them to fail or are most of the sensors easy enough that we can just wait for them to fail? So that was, that was probably the last part of my um, little comment here was if you're not going to closely monitor the sensor degradation, meaning one day, let's say day one, you put the uh, temperature sensor in and it reads one degree off of ambient temperature, right? Let's say it's an ambient temperature sensor and it's outside at 70 degrees and your sensor reads 71. Well, let's say, in two years, the sensor reads, you know, eight degrees off. Okay. Well, if you weren't monitoring that and checking it, things can just slowly fail over time. Right. And you might say eight degrees on the ambient temperature isn't a big deal. It might not be. It's not going to shift the operating mode, and it's not going to put it in the high altitude or anything like that. But let's say this happens to an EGR differential pressure sensor. Day one of that sensor, the EGR flow is on what it's supposed to be. Well, as that sensor begins to degrade, it might tell the ECM, hey, I need a little bit more EGR. Hey, I need a little bit more EGR. Now you start this foot train in your engine, and then it plugs up, you know, the DOC, the DPF, or your fuel mod gets worse because you have more EGR gas. That's one that I see all the time. I think should just be changed on a routine basis. And there's several more specifically with the EGR system that I think you should change on a regular basis. I would say at the same time as you have the DPF cleaned. If you have the DPF cleaned every 250,000 miles, change a bunch of those uh, important sensors like the EGR temp sensor, the delta pressure, the delta pressure on the DPF, uh, the, the DOC inlet temperature. Things like that are things I would do on a routine basis, even if they're not bad, because they can give you an off reading, which will just you know, decrease performance again and lower fuel mileage. I, uh, Leroy, let me ask you this. If you're running the max mileage catalyst and you're cleaning the DPF every half a million miles, would you change those sensors then in a half a million? I still would. Like I said, uh, even if soot isn't affecting the venturi tubes to the EGR sensor, um, that sensor will still degrade over time. That's just the nature of them. It happens. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with like knock sensors and stuff like that. I mean, if a knock sensor starts to read off, it could read off in the direction that makes you use more depth. So, yeah, I mean, the, the catalyst is good for keeping soot out of the venturi tubes and pressure tubes and off the temp sensors and things like that. But the sensors still go bad and they still just need replaced on a regular schedule. Yeah. Kevin, have you noticed uh, Leroy's list is totally different than Pete and mine because Pete and I are mechanical guys and Leroy's an electrical guy. You know what I was just thinking so is see- I... I like the way you guys set this up, and I didn't know you were doing this today. We didn't talk about this. We didn't coordinate it, but I love the way you set it up that you had everybody do their own list, and then you showed up here, and then I had some things. I think that worked really well. Yes, it did. We all learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And uh, I guess just to wrap it up, my last thing, my number five is install an ATU if your truck isn't already equipped with one. Besides the fact that extended idle can be harmful to the engine and your after treatment, it uses like 90% less fuel. And, you know, I'm not saying that you should never idle your truck. Um, Like when you're in cold weather, you should warm up the engine slowly, you know, because rapid expansion of like exhaust components and stuff like that can lead to failures. So I'm not saying never idle, but just extended idle can be really bad again, for the after treatment in the engine. So get an APU if you don't go. This, I'm going to jump in. I think this question's a little more difficult. I've been answering this one for years. So a couple other things I would think about. Do you really need the APU in your operation? And I'm with you. We've got to keep that idle down to a minimum. But for a, a lot of years, I ran an operation where I just didn't have to idle all that often anyway. You know, it was a little more regional. I was out a couple nights a week, and I'd usually get back to the house in midweek and then again at the end of the week. And, you know, I it, it doesn't matter how cold it is for me. We just went through this. We were at a truck stop, our first stop, and we were waiting for the passes to open in Oregon. And it was fluctuating between about 28 degrees at the coldest point during the night and 36 or so during the day. And we stopped that first night. We're in the Sprinter. So it's Lisa and I in the Sprinter. And it got down to like the high 20s, I think. We turned everything off when we parked. The generator wasn't on. There was no heat on in the van at all. And while we were back there getting ready to go to bed. I was reading. It got kind of stuffy. I actually cracked a window open and we went all night like that with a window open and it got down, I think got like 29, 30, somewhere in that range. And with a couple of good blankets and flannel sheets, it was such good sleeping. I just don't understand why people idle when it's cold. Now, when it's hot, that's another matter. I can't sleep when it's hot, but you know, I didn't run that many places where it was really hot. And if I idled once in a while, it wasn't that big of a deal. Or I'd get a room. If I if it was going to be more than 12 hours, I'd just go get a room. You know, you have a nice shower. You usually have a pool, a gym. For the little bit you pay for a room once in a while, that's a good option. So I there are times where I would absolutely have an APU, no doubt about it. And I would. there are times where I would have a full-blown diesel-powered APU. But I would really, really consider some of the other options now. Uh, the The electric APUs that are getting so much better or the idea that a lot of people have done with like a Honda generator and, you know, a room air conditioner. 
And for less than $1,000 or right around $1,000, they get cooling. Uh, so I, I'm with you. We, we need to minimize idling. But I don't know if it always makes, well, no, I do know. It doesn't always make sense to go buy that twelve or $15,000 APU. That's what those things are costing now. So for some people, it makes sense. For others, it, you have to find better ways not to idle. Right. Yeah, it doesn't make sense in every scenario, but there's, you know, some that it does make sense. And then there's alternate options, like you're saying, that, you know. Would be yeah, I, I think the idea is everybody should look at their idle time and figure out how to minimize it. And for some people, that will mean a twelve or $15,000 APU. Uh, you know, they use it enough. They, they're in the truck enough. They're gone long enough that it makes sense. Uh, but I would also just, just say... It's not that we're telling you to get an expensive diesel-fired APU. What we're telling you to do is look at your idle time and figure out how you can minimize it. Yeah. I mean, that's something, too, you can see in an ECM report. I know that was mentioned yes, earlier. Good point. But yeah, that's something maybe you should tr do pre-purchase. Yes. Is check the report. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe one day, if you feel like it, Leroy, you could throw together a couple different reports pulled out of different ECMs and, you know, what kind of things you would be looking for, what kind of things are available in the different engines? Because they vary, right? Yeah. Yeah. They all look different, but they all kind of give the same data. Yeah. Okay. And I've had, I've told people the, you know, if you're at a dealer and they're selling the truck, have them pull the report for you and they shouldn't charge you for this. If they're selling the truck and they have the ability there, they should just do this for you. Um, are there different levels somebody could pull out? It seems to me like there is because sometimes people send me a report. It's like two pages. And I'm like, no, I'm looking for like 20 pages. Yeah, I mean, different software pulls different things and then different manufacturers um, list more or less like Cummins, for instance, they give you 54 pages, right? But like cat will give you two pages. That's kind of what I'm, yeah, that's kind of what I was referring to. So yeah. maybe, maybe we'll do a show where you just kind of go through, you know, at a high level, the different reports. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Good. All right. What do you say? We, uh, we go to some phone calls. Anybody else have anything else today? No, I'm ready. That's it. All right. So uh, hey, I, I'll say this about a. Hey, let me say one thing about APUs. Uh, my good friend Mike Lane, Ogden, Utah, 2006 Western Star, D Deck Five, uh, runs the APU all the time, and the still the original engine from 2006. The truck makes 720 or 740 horsepower. Uh, he drives it properly, gets a lot of maintenance, but no idle and no rebuild yet. I think he's up around 1.3 million. There you go. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, By the, the way, uh, the, truck, the truck runs so good when he's following a company truck up a hill, load for load. Uh, the company truck, the DD-15, is wide open and Mike's behind him at 23 pounds of boost. That's all it takes when the truck runs. Very wow. nice. Very nice. Wow. All right. Phone lines are open. We've got uh, a couple calls we'll grab right now. You want to jump in, 855-950-3835. We'll stay till we run on a call, so line them up. We're going to get started in Utah. 
Heath, welcome to the program. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Leroy, I, I have a 2014 ProStar. It's got a Wabco ABS system. I plug my laptop in, able to get three codes out of it. Controller excess slip, calibration memory, wheel parameter incorrect, auxiliary one, auxiliary two, RSC shorted to ground. I'm thinking my next step is to find the short, and I'm wondering if these are all related. What, um, what is your advice? Um, the first two sound related. What was what was the third one? Something RSC. What auxiliary auxiliary one slash auxiliary two slash RSC shorted to ground. So one thing you can do to see if they're all related is look at the number of counts, or do they all have the same number of counts? The first one, the controller has twenty-two counts. The calibration memory and the third code have two and then three counts. So it seems like actually the last two, if they have a similar number of counts, I would say that those are related, and the first one is probably okay. irrelated. Um, that's just the way that it looks, because if, if codes are causing one another, you'll see the same number, right? So Got it. I, would, I would probably, yeah, go with the short. That might be the easier one. And then I would, I think that first one is probably more what your ABS light is on all the time, if it's happening 22 Got times. It. I don't know if that's recently, but I that one might be more of a priority to me. The last one might be the easiest, but I would might go with the first one. And okay. I don't know and if then, you know this, but there's a Wabco offers free service manuals and troubleshooting on their website. So you can just type in what controller it is, um, go to the website, and you can download. I think they call it service data, but it basically is the service okay. manual, how the system works, how to fix it, what you should check for. Um, it's all up there for free. Uh, it's a really good system. That's what I use to fix stuff here. Okay, and then uh, I have your laptop. Um, and will I be able to find the controller number in the Webco software? Yeah, when you hook up the uh, software, you'll be able to see it. Uh, what's what's the Webco numbers? I can't think off the top of my head right now. The Bendix ones are EC like 60s or EC 80s. The Webco ones, I can't think of the part numbers off the top of my head. But yeah, you'll be able to see what it is. Okay, perfect. And then as far as uh, troubleshooting the short, my thought is I just pull the connector off of the ABS module and then uh, check for continuity to ground at each pin because I think most of the system is a closed system. Is that a good idea? Yeah, one I would say one e even easier way to check for shorts, if you have a, a short circuit code, I mean, this kind of applies to anything in general, is to unplug it. Because if let's say it's a short circuit on a sensor, if you unplug it and it's still short, then you know it's in the wiring. If it goes to oh, open, got it. Okay. Then you know the short is in the sensor itself. And then the opposite is true for open circuit codes. I know that's not what you have, but if you have an open circuit code and you put just a piece of wire or a paper clip between it and it goes to short, then you know the controller and all the wiring is good. It's sort of what we call like a circuit response test. It's one way to quickly narrow down, okay, is it, you know, the sensor side or the motor side, whatever, or is it the wiring side? And you can do that at the plug. You can do that right directly at the ECU or the ABS module. That's kind of the quick way to figure out where your problem is. Okay, perfect. All right, I appreciate it. And uh, Bruce, do you want a snow update? Yes, go ahead. Uh, Utah, I think we're at about 175% of snowpack. And uh, our big um, 
ski resort here close to town, Alta, they, they, they're the easiest to get in, uh, snow numbers from. And they're at 641 inches on the year, and they're only about 100 inches away from breaking the all-time record. I just read something today where Park City is going to extend its closing date, and it'll be the longest they've ever been open. It's been a good snow year, but uh, that's all I had. Thanks, Leroy. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, no problem. Kevin? Kevin? Uh, yep, thanks for the call. Go ahead, Bruce. I was muted for a second. What would you think of that? Leroy, I'm impressed. <laughs> you guys were talking about stuff I never heard of. There you go. That was impressive. Yeah, that was very good. Yeah, it was. All right, so I'm looking at a uh, an interesting piece of equipment here. On Twitter, since I'm on Twitter now, I haven't been for over a decade, I follow, like, drivers in other countries, owner-operators in other countries, and, and some truck magazines. It's amazing how different some of the equipment is. So think about what we use for hauling logs. Uh, where I am in the country, a big part of the way they do it. I don't even know what they call these. Do they call that part of the log trailer a bogey? The wheels on the back and the cradle that the logs sit in, but then it... It, you put it up on the tractor when you're driving without the logs. Is that called a bogey? What do they call that thing? Anybody know? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, so that it, they're pretty weird trailers. We tend to use mostly the old classics with big wheels on them. And um, I'm looking at uh, it's somewhere in Europe. I'm not really sure where this one comes from. So here's their log truck and trailer combination. It's a single axle cab over tractor. That's the first thing that's really odd, especially for a log hauler. The trailer itself is one piece. It looks like it's maybe, I'm going to say 30 feet long. It's not all that long. It's got the big cradles, but they, they fold down. Then it's got a sliding kingpin, not a sliding fifth wheel. The kingpin slides on the trailer. So once they take the logs off, they slide the trailer on the kingpin till it's up tight against the back of the tractor. Then the back half of the trailer, which is a triaxle trailer with a liftable forward axle, that whole trailer folds up on top of the, the back of the tractor and off you go like a bobtail. It's pretty wow. slick. That is pretty slick. Now, here's why they claim they did it. They claim that it keeps toll costs down when you're empty, which would be true. But, man, you'd have to drive in a place with a lot of tolls, I think, to make something like that trailer's got to be expensive. And heavy, I would think, too. You know, well. it is heavier than it needs to be, but it's also pretty darn short. Like I said, this, this whole unit's not very long at all. But I guess with logs, you cut them to the size you need that you can haul on that trailer. But it's a pretty slick operation, but it's so wildly different from the way we haul logs over here. Pretty crazy. All right, let's get to some calls. So we've got lines open if you want to jump in. Do it now, 855-950-3835. When we're out of calls, we'll be done today. We're going to go to South Dakota. Chad, welcome to the program. Hey, guys, I've got a question about a repair that I did over the weekend. 
This is on a 2015 X15 CM2350. It's the uh, it was an exhaust leak that is just after it comes out of the exhaust manifold, goes into the EGR cooler. Um, it's got a slip joint there that's got a got a collar and then the the connector itself. After I had the the turbo, the manifold off, everything got it all put back together. New gaskets, new bolts. I've got a squeal in the engine. You might even be able to hear it now when I'm in a pull, and it sounds like like when you'd blow across a piece of grass when you were a kid. I mean, it sounds like a reed. And my first guess yeah. is it would be a gasket somewhere. Have you heard this before? What should I look it, for? I would think it's either the gasket or one of the rubber connections on the EGR crossover pipe. I think those are rubber connections up there, right? Okay, and that didn't have to come apart at all for okay. the crossover pipe. Uh, didn't take the EGR cooler off, you know, just the turbo man- and manifold. Retorked everything to, I went to 50 pounds on them. Um, yeah. I've checked and make sure that I don't see any leaks. All the all the bolts are still there, nothing broken. But let's see. Um, as far as the stinger for your EGT temps that comes to the the mechanic, the analog gauge. That's just that's just a wire that comes in, right, off the stinger. Uh, say that one more time. The the probe that goes into the manifold for your exhaust. Right. Temps. A thermocouple. That's yes. not okay. Yeah, thank you. The thermocouple. That's not that turns into an electrical connection. There's not a a tube in there that could get crushed or anything, right? Yeah, no. It's um. Yeah, the probe just sticks down in there, and yeah, it just turns into electrical connection. Yeah, there's there's okay. nothing to really get crushed on there. I mean, it does have a case over it, but um, I don't think crushing the case would damage the sensor. But I guess it depends on how much you crushed it. Okay. When it makes that noise, I can obviously make it get louder and quieter with the with the foot feed and then it goes away but it boy it just sounds like it's right there on the firewall i mean that's the only thing coming in the cab would be that i mean you might be able to uh pressurize that side and find the leak like how we do a boost test um i don't know if you can do a boost test with the key on if the egr valve opens i don't know but you could also take the thermocouple out and put your air in there and that would check it from the exhaust side on the back side okay. of the EGR valve which will go through the cooler and everything you replace you might have to stick something in the tailpipe but you might be able to to find your issue there I wouldn't pressurize it much more than 10 PSI on that side but that should be enough to find your leak okay because it's not showing up until you know probably 30 pounds of boost right yeah, that's on the intake side, but on the exhaust side, yep. you might be able to find it quicker. I mean, but it's got to be something that you were just in there, you know, it didn't yep. do this deal before, so it's right. somewhere where you just replace. You just turn okay. something off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, shoot, and the only gasket I didn't replace was between the between the turbo and the manifold itself. Mm. Okay. Right. Maybe I should have replaced that. Yeah, you always Question have to replace on- the gaskets after they've gone through a heat cycle. Yeah. Okay. So this has your uh, your manifold on it. One thing I came across when replacing this is that Cummins has a technical service bulletin that they go to, you know, they went to the new style with the bellows in it. Um, you don't have to take everything apart to, to replace that piece, and it's, I guess, fewer exhaust leaks. The problem is, with your manifold on it, it's got a different end. Cummins, of course, wants to sell you a new third section to the exhaust manifold. I wondered if you guys have looked into that at all as far as, you know, next time I do it, can I, I don't want to put a stock one back on if I've got your 
ported encoded manifold on here, but I'd like the third section, I guess, with the different end and then do the upgrade. Yeah, I've I've seen that service bulletin, but I guess I never put one to one together. Um yep. to to see that point. That's really interesting. Um yeah, it's just something we're gonna have to look into. Yeah, come so on. I, I, sorry, Pete. Um at some point uh, give Brian a call here. Brian's a shop foreman. So I, I yep. think there might be something he might be able to help you with on that. There's a part that I think we replace when we do the manifold. Brian would be able to answer that for you. Okay. I emailed you first on this. You sent me to Brian. Brian gave me the parts and all that, the part numbers and all that stuff to replace it. So I can okay. talk to him again. It's just that, you know, Cummins wants a thousand bucks just for that third section alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you guys start, if you guys were to start uh, selling just that third section, of course, I'd pay for that with a different end on it and then send mine back so you could reuse it, I guess. Yeah, let's look into that. I, I know there were some issues there, and I don't remember what they were. Okay. Just labor costs alone or the time, you know, going to that to that upgrade with the bellows, you know, that'd save a ton of time not having to drop the coolant, take the turbo and manifold off. Oh, yeah, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I'll check into that. Anyway, um, yeah, I'll talk to Brian, and we'll see if he has any answers for next time. Sounds good. All right, okay, thanks thank for the you. call. Let's go to... Texas. Paul, welcome to the program. Howdy. What's on um, your mind today? You talk about well, how primitive some of the transport equipment in this country is. Yeah. You're, some of the stuff in this country is two decades behind, I reckon. It so, kind of looks that way. Logging. Yeah, well, I think I've seen that video that you're talking about, um, but I'm not sure how they do their, their fuel tax, because in New Zealand... All the loggers always put their trailer up when they're empty because we don't pay tax on the fuel. You pay tax for the truck. You pay tax for the trailer or the B train or whatever. You pay for the amount of axles you have on the ground and the weight that you run at. We don't We don't have the tax on the so, fuel. You pay a road so it, user charge. So it's a mileage tax. Mileage, weight, and yeah, axles. Got it. I, yeah. We, so, we should have switched to a mileage tax a long, long time ago. It makes way more sense. And if you switch to a mileage tax, then that whole issue of electric, propane, hydrogen, diesel, synthetic diesel, it doesn't matter what fuel you use. You don't have to mess around with the tax code. Right now, our tax code yep. doesn't work for these alternative fuel vehicles. They're not paying any of the, well, the tax. Switch it to a nationwide mileage tax and be done with it. Well, if you compare like Henry Albert, those guys that are getting double-digit fuel mileage, they pay about half the... And I'm, yeah, not, I'm right. not picking on them. I'm just using it. Well, they pay about half the fuel tax that I pay. And I only get 5.6 miles a gallon. You know, in reality, I could see why the, the, you know, the green tree huggers would like a system like that. You are rewarding the people who harm the environment less. You're rewarding them for for not doing as much damage. The problem is, like I said, once we started to realize there were alternative fuels out there and there's more and more of them, we just need to drop the fuel tax. It's complicated. It's not working right. And just switch it to a mileage tax. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt my feelings, but it's hard to get change 
done in this yeah. country for something that's because it's like oh we don't and I'm I'm guilty of it too like the last week I hop in my truck and I log on and the ELD I use and it's like what the hell they done change the screen but it's it only took me a few days to work out oh it's actually better than it was right but I hop in I see that change and it's like I was annoyed it's like oh they changed it why it was working but they actually made well, it better. Yeah, and we have to deal with that constantly here because we write a lot of software. We have websites, multiple websites. We have multiple apps. And I don't want to keep updating the apps. You know, there's the really it doesn't need anything new. Fuel gauges works really well. I don't want to put a bunch of features in there just to say we upgraded, but you are forced to upgrade. There's no choice because they keep changing the underlying technology that you used. At some point, if we don't update our app, it won't work on your phone anymore. So so we're forced to constantly update things. Well, you know what they say, adapt or die. I, that's, yeah. yeah. So that's just what you got to do. Yeah. So if you, if you can find the European the heavy haul guys and like their version of an RGN trailer like uh, over here in the States you'll have a tractor and then the Jeep or the Dolly whatever they call it load chair or whatever right. and then they hook the RGN on and then they put another dinger out the back of it yeah. well, they'll have on a European trailer all those axles are on the trailer and all of them steer so you'll see them come up to a roundabout or a traffic circle whatever you want to call it and They'll go round the traffic circle, and they won't even touch the touch the curb. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you see nice. Some of those, you see some of those nineteen axles. It's like give me forty acres, and I'll hang around. But, yeah, it seems to yeah. me like Sorry, it, it. It seems to me like we don't try to build efficient trailers for specific things we throw out the most generic trailer we can and the idea is well everybody with every truck has to be able to pull every trailer Uh, well that's fine except there are lots of operations where we don't do that here's a good one log haulers it's their own trailer they're not dropping and hooking multiple trailers all the time that's the one trailer they'll use for the next six years we should make them a little more efficient yeah, well, the, the the log trucks in New Zealand, most of them are um, a straight truck, a three or more often than not, a four-axle, a lot of the time they cab over, and then they'll have a five-axle pull trailer. Yeah. And, they'll, and the folding bolsters, the bolsters will slide down or fold down, but they will also slide on the truck and the trailer. So they can either haul four stacks of, no, three stacks of 18-foot logs, or they can haul 60-foot logs on the same unit Yeah. So they, by folding bolsters down. So you got to well, be versatile. And a pine tree will grow a whole lot bigger in New Zealand. Yeah, Some that's right. Some of those right. you see in this country. So, yeah. Because so, you come down here in the south, and they don't call them log haulers. They call them stick haulers. Stick haulers. You make toothpicks out of some of them. Got yeah. it. Yeah. They put hey, Paul. So, yeah. Paul. Well, when you said this, the axles in the rear of the trailer steer, don't they have to have a man back there sitting under the load steering that? No. They follow. It's like a 
Yeah, yeah, they follow. The axle will turn, but it just follows the axles in front of it. There, I think they call it. Yeah, but like what? On, the front of, on the front, if you're making a left turn, the wheels on the front of the trailer will turn to the left, but the wheels on the back of the trailer turn to the right. They'll actually turn the other. So you got one will turn. So that's why it goes around. It'll go in a complete circle with a whole, whole lot less sweat path. Like a fifty-three foot trailer, you make a U-turn. And you need the, a lot of space. The wheels will end yeah. up going back. Yeah, well, the, yeah. unless you see some of these guys, they turn real tight. And the trailer wheels will actually go backwards. Cause, right. But, yeah, just way different so, in other parts of the world. So, And well, even in New Zealand, we have guys that have, um, this is also in the logging sector, but we don't leave we don't leave anything behind. They'll go out they, the, the right down to the stump. Well, that's not going to fit on a log trailer. So they have these dump trucks, and because those guys, all that's all they're doing is falling out of the forest. And they make their trailers where the trailer is narrower. So the, the dump trailer, the tailgate will fold up on the truck, and the dump trailer will actually, the whole trailer and everything will go into the back of the truck. So they don't pay any wasted road tax. They save on the road tax. So, 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 so back to this... Back to this steering axle on the rear. Do you have to have steering linkage go back all the way to that axle? No, no. It's um, everything will be on the axle. It's like a, I think they call it sissy steering, C I S S I or something. It it just yeah. as soon as you start turning, it'll just track automatically the other way. So. So I have a client that hauls those hundred and some foot long beams for overpasses. And they have the steerable dolly, and the, oh, yeah. uh, the person that steers it actually sits underneath the beam. Right. Yeah, yeah I've it, seen those videos. Bruce, haven't yeah. you ever seen the um, the fire engines that are like that? They're so long, the ladder trucks. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, Same like thing, where, where somebody rides yeah. in the far back way at the end right. of that trailer, and they steer it around the corners. Yeah, same kind of thing. Oh, I've, I've, I've seen them at pretty high speeds, and yeah, uh, I yeah. give that guy credit. He's pretty good. <laughs> the driver, all the driver cares about is getting the front through. Yeah. Now right. the guy in the back has to worry about the back. Yeah. Here's something else I, I wonder. So when I first you know, found out that a sliding kingpin existed, it are, it was it's in existence. They've been making them for a long, long time. Why I've never seen a single trailer in my lifetime with a sliding kingpin. It really gives you a lot of flexibility on where you put the weight on that tractor. And it, it gives you a lot of flexibility in closing up the gap for aerodynamics. I'm, I'm just shocked that we don't use them at all. No, we use a sliding fifth wheel. Well, yeah, but that's very, very different, Bruce. The sliding fifth wheel, you have a couple problems. One, you you have to fight against weight distribution and clearance to your to your landing gear. I mean, at some point, you can't slide it up anymore. And it only... God, how do I even... When you look at a diagram of when you slide a fifth wheel where the weight goes compared to sliding the kingpin... It's not the same at all. It's not even close to where how much you can customize that weight if you can slide the kingpin. 
I had a trailer with a sliding kickpin. Actually, this trailer I'm, I'm towing now, it was actually built with a sliding kingpin, but that was a screw-up on the salesman part, so I actually took it out. But the previous trailer I had, it had a sliding kingpin, and I'll be honest with you, I thought it was terrible. It, you can move the weight different than what you'll move it with a sliding fifth wheel, but when they get old, you take off, clunk, you stop, clunk. Well, that, yeah. I, you but, know, I've yeah. I've been in trucks with worn-out fifth wheels, too, and that's really annoying. But, yeah, that, that you would want to take care of. But if you have both a sliding yeah. kingpin and a sliding fifth wheel, you can really put weight any on any axle you want. Where you do see a lot of sliding kingpins, they not so much now because everybody's building 80-foot quick loaders. But before that rule came in, you used to see a lot of car hauler trailers with sliding kingpins on them. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Like I said, as far as I know, I've never yeah. seen a trailer that had a sliding kingpin. And this one does, this log trailer, that's the first thing that happens. They slide it on the kingpin till the front of the trailer is almost touching the back of the cab. In, in Australia, they'll have uh, triple V trains and the first trailer is the one that stack that stays on the ground, but the the next two just stack up on top, all done from the cab. Oh, gee, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah, we. Switch. Yeah, we and don't seem to do much up. of that here. Right, so. Yeah. All right, Paul. All right, I'll carry good, on. Let someone else. In. Good stuff. We're gonna head to Illinois this time. Pete, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this question is for Leroy. Um, do you guys, are you guys doing D12 Volvo tuning? Uh, what year do you got? It's an 05. Um, I don't, I haven't had a chance to look at one yet. I mean, I don't know if my tooling will read and write to that, but I, yeah, I just have not had the opportunity to, to, uh, to even look yet, but I, I would have to double check to see if the, uh, equipment will do it. If the equipment does it, then I'm sure I could come up with something. Well, okay, so it's my, uh, you know, I've been on a mission to tune my D12, and I've done a lot of stuff to it. Do you guys have TRAS data, Sport that we use? Yeah, we do, yep. Okay. So here's another basic question. I've had a guy tune my ECM with some KESS equipment, and mm-hmm. he claims, uh, first of all, I know Bruce likes this, It's a, the stock form is 465 horse, and I think 1650 torque. And this guy claims that he tuned the ECM to 550 and about 1800 torque. Now, when I drive it, I can feel it's got a little bit uh, of an improvement. But the boost gauge goes from 30 to maybe 32 now, maybe 33. And I'm thinking if that thing's got 550 horse, that thing should be up to 40 or something like that. You know, is it possible to achieve increases in horsepower and torque without seeing the, the, the boost gauge go up significantly? Is that possible? How, many, how, how much horsepower gain did he give you? Almost 100. He said, it, yeah, yeah, from 400. You should have, you should have gained at least six pounds of boost with 100. Yeah. Six pounds, okay. You just can't me, read it, though. It feels like it went maybe to 500, maybe a little bit over 500. That's kind of the feeling I get. 
way it, it pulls now. Um, so if, this, if this guy has uh, done a tune with the cat tooling, did that mean, I mean, we have K-Tag and cat tooling here as well. So, I mean, that means it's doable. Yeah. So you, depending on where you are, why don't you uh, swing by for a couple of days and we'll see what we can't come up with something. Yeah. That would be nice. I, I, I'm in Illinois, Central Illinois, and I do just Illinois hauling, so it would be quite a quite a trip to take without knowing whether you can do something. Um, the other question I have is is you know um, I can I can get a turbocharger, an HX52, with modified billet wheels and so forth, really custom. That from the builder adds 150 horsepower but it needs the proper software tuning, the fine tuning to make that work. So is it that a EGR engine? Yes. Mm. And does it have a VG on it now or no? VG variable geometry turbo? Yeah. No, no, no. It's just the HX 52. Mm. Okay. I think I know what you're talking about, but, you know, uh, but it's, it's incredible to me that there's, tuning for Cummins and Cat and everything, but you can't can't seem to get a thing going with with Volvos. Great. Yeah, we have been working on it. We have been working on it. But yeah, they've just have been previously in years past, they've just been sort of the, uh, you know, just hated. No one liked a Volvo or a Mac. It's just kind of recently, they think they're starting to gain in popularity. So yeah. now I start, I'm, I, I'm getting way more calls about Volvos recently than I ever used to. Yeah. And, and I know the TRW ECU is, is a tough nut to crack. Um, mm. But, yeah, anyway, I'm just, you know, uh, Leroy, I messaged you a couple of times about tuning the D12, and I didn't seem to go anywhere. And that's kind of like where I end up with everybody that I try to talk to about tuning. Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, if you Like you said, if your guy has done it with Kess, that means that we can do it. Uh, the only way we could do it from Illinois is you would either maybe we could get some equipment out to you just to sort of test with you would have to buy your own equipment or you'd have to send the ecm in which can be a little bit of a disaster because you're just constantly sending it back and forth back and forth so let's maybe uh let's maybe connect after the show and we'll see if we can't get some rental equipment out to you and see if we can't uh you know maybe just do it remotely okay i would be super interested in that yeah yeah give me a call after the show we connect afterwards uh, yeah, just call us here yeah, at the uh, Leroy, the right? Leroy? That is correct. Very good. I'll do that. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks yeah, for the call. No Let's go to Iowa. Matt, welcome. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, your um, uh, your wife says good morning. Yeah, there's, there was a lot of giggling when she picked up the line with three girls there. Yeah, they're they're in they're they're in the main house. I'm back in the backyard in the studio. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, first, I'll comment, uh, Bruce, what you were talking about there with the uh, steerable trailers and the guy riding in it. I've seen mm-hmm. that in Miami with the, with the bridge beams. Um, yes. Pretty, pretty wild because, yeah, they're sitting right down underneath everything, almost on the ground, just a little. Almost on the axle, huh? Hey. Yeah, yeah. It's you quite just, wild. You just reminded me of something. Have you ever seen – I don't believe they ever even built one if they did it was just a concept they they worked on a design that was actually called a cab under not a cab over and you the driver was underneath the trailer 
the cab yeah. was underneath the front of the trailer. It looked awful. I can't even imagine. That was a suicide truck, yes. Kevin. Yeah, that was I mean, you awful. You couldn't see what was going on up in front of it. You could have one of those Kias at Paul Halls, and you couldn't see over it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a crazy idea. Yeah. You know, Matt, what you just said... What you just said about seeing that in Miami, just just in the trucking industry, in the owner-operator segment of trucking industry, look at what you guys see in your lifetime versus these poor people who have to work in an office or sell life insurance or work in a factory. Look at, look at the scope of knowledge and the things that you guys gain being out there every day. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, most of the big, big oversized loads, it's all hydraulic steering on that back, and right. at least it used to be. Maybe they've upgraded, like Paul was talking there, a lot of it is technology and automation. But a lot of that, it was remote-controlled, usually from the pilot car. They would steer the trailer around corners. Really? But yeah, it, it, That's really mm-hmm. crazy. I've seen trailers where each individual axle will steer. Or I've seen it where, like, the two Jeeps work against each other and they would steer. You'd have, well, usually it's three-axle groups on them bigger loads. So you'd have three axles would turn against the back. The front three would turn against the back three to be able to steer it. But there's all kinds of options. I mean, it's pretty wild what they've invented in that department. Yeah, that's for sure. And. Then when they were building that pipeline over by you guys into Pennsylvania and Ohio, I was driving by one of the sites where they stockpiled it, and them pipe trailers, because I think those are 100-foot sections, they actually had cables that ran the length of the trailer, so when it turned, it would pull on the cable against the truck that would make the trailer turn the opposite direction. It was all mechanical, but it was quite wild. Yeah, I can see that. I can't imagine how much slop there was in that going down the highway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, so the reason for my call is, does anybody remember what all the talk about one year ago this week was mainly in the trucking industry, but it was, you know, national news. Everybody was talking about it. Is that the uh, truckers in Canada doing the... Uh... No. Caravan? Well, that uh, was probably the same same time, but just fuel price. Yeah. One week, one year ago, last week, we gained over seventy cents a gallon on national average. Wow. You know what? Yeah, what so, it is crazy is we're acting like the fuel price now is low, right? Because well, it, it we officially for the first time in a year are cheaper than it was a year ago. Okay. This, this month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but, I saw five twenty a gallon in Wyoming. I didn't think that was very cheap. I paid over four ninety nine here in well, Colorado. I paid over five on this trip on the way $6 down. Dollars a gallon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but don't you remember up until this last run up in price? Any time we went over four, people lost their mind. And now we're acting like four is no big deal. Well, that's how they. That's how the politicians have trained us. Yep. And they've trained us. They teach us oh. train fleas. The, the politicians say it's all the oil companies. <laughs> yeah. They're just getting rich. That's right. Yeah, our national average yesterday 
is four twenty-eight a gallon. That's that is historically really high, right? Historically, that is those were record high prices, and now we're acting like it's just no big deal. That's why everything costs so much at the store, because that diesel gets it across the ocean. It goes on a train and needs diesel, goes on a truck and needs diesel. Every time that that freight moves, it needs diesel. That's why we need uh, the main man from New York, Mr. Trump, back in office. It's going to be an interesting (laughs) ride. There's no doubt. All right, Matt, anything else? Uh, no, I can let you move along from there. Nothing really engine-wise or today's show. So. Got it. All right. We will head off to Wisconsin this time. Rick, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I was shocked the other day when I took my 2015 T680. I got a Canworth with a pack car engine in it to the dealer, my hometown, to get my DPF clean because I'm coming up on 980,000 miles on it. And it's never been out of the truck. I figured there might be some ash built up in it. I've never had to do a park regen for anything. It always just regens as I drive down the road. And uh, they told me I shouldn't do it. They, they took it inside. You know, first I took it to them, got an estimate. It'd be about three grand for them to go through all the gaskets and maybe a sensor will fail afterwards or something after they put it all back together. And they said, well, first of all, they're going to clean some sensors up on the engine and stuff and then uh, look at the computer. So they did that, and they called me and said, hey, you're doing uh, regens every 80 to 100 hours. And I said, well, is that good or is that bad? They said, they, they think it's like a brand-new truck. They, don't, they hardly see that with something with over 900,000 miles. I was wondering what you guys think. I mean, well, they sold me an EGR valve because it was leaking soot out of it, and they cleaned a plug tube by the turbo that was plugged up, and the uh, intake pressure sensor was uh, was kind of plugged with soot. So, I mean, it's not not that, like there's no soot, but um, they didn't think it was worth me spending any money uh, taking the thing out at this point. Uh, never been out. What do you guys think? Did they tell you what the ash load was? Ash load. No, but they didn't think there was any need to clean any ash because uh, they, they didn't think there'd be any in there. But did, that particular term didn't come up. Uh, what they said, what, what they they were shocked about was that it was 80 to 100 hours before it was doing a regen. Yeah, 80 driving. to 100 hours sounds like a healthy regen. Have, have you owned this for 900,000 miles? or? Yeah. I've had it since it was new. I've never, never had it. I mean, I had it to you guys once, and you, you pulled down an exhaust pipe, and it cracked, and you said, ah, the filter looks good. That was about 300,000 miles. That's the only time ever, anybody ever looked at it, and that was right before you had the catalyst come out. I brought it to you for an emission cleaning, and I mean, you didn't do anything then either. I, I, I think if, if you went 900,000 miles and you never needed to clean your DPF, either you have the, the world's greatest after-treatment system or the guys are a bunch of jabronis. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they, they said that they cleaned plug tubes, but then they say your filter doesn't need cleaned. You know what I mean? So obviously there's soot in the system, and if there's soot in the system, then there is ash in the system. So I think if you went 900,000 miles on uh, a DPF without being cleaned, A, I mean, that's fantastic. You've done a great job taking care of your truck. And B, yeah, I think it definitely needs it definitely needs cleaned. Okay. Um, they were saying that. At this point, I've saved enough by not having it done that I could, you know, I could just have it replaced for about fifteen hundred, about forty-five hundred, rather than having it clean for three thousand. And I mean, if I'm going to have it yeah. out, they recommend that I just 
have it replaced if I'm going to have it out at all. But uh, they they uh, they would they'd rather sell me that new EGR valve anyways. But uh, yeah. put off the the DPF cleaning for a later date yet. They didn't think it was necessary yet. But I mean, I think um, I think that's a personal preference whether you want a new one or um, just to clean that one. Are you the type of guy that likes to get every mile out of you know your your sensors and your DPF and stuff, or are you the type of guy that wants to just replace it anyway? Um, well, I'm the that, I'm the guy that okay. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was gonna say that's just on you, what you how you run your operations. Well, I run a little bit differently now. At first, uh, uh, I was uh, trying to get every mile out of my fuel filters too, but that ended up ruining my uh, fuel pumps, uh, my high pressure pumps, because uh, I was uh, running till I, I was going to run it till I felt uh, some uh, loss of power, and it never did. But that started to uh, set a code for. Uh, uh, well, something with the fuel pressures, and it, and it ends up I had to had to have new fuel pumps put in, but uh, mm. that was about yeah. 180,000 miles on on uh, fuel filters. Yeah, no, it sounds mistake. like you you have a really healthy system. I mean, 80 to 100 hours uh, is good. I wouldn't say that it's like impressive for that year. It's definitely good, but it, it's tough. I think if I was in your situation and I had absolutely no check engine lights. I would probably have it just cleaned because it's pretty cheap at the DPF alternative. I mean, I would probably have it cleaned, just check over some things. And if you get another 200,000 miles out of it before you have an issue, that's great. But, you know, I yeah, I would definitely have it cleaned if it were me. The DPF alternative, say it'll be about $3,000 too for a pack car? No, to have it uh, cleaned, what, what do they run, Pete? Is it four ninety nine? the cleaning? Uh, that sounds about right. I think it's, it's you could call it a shop, and that, that does not include gaskets or clamps taking it off. But it's going to be way under three grand, and it seems off, awfully high. Yeah, when you get your DPF cleaned at DPF Alternatives, I mean, I know when we clean stuff here, the guy that cleans them will come over and talk to you and say, like, hey, I noticed that there were some cracks in the back, or you had a couple dead cells, or this or that. He'll kind of give you an an update, or he might come over and say, yeah, this thing looks like it's brand new. It's, you're doing fantastic. But just, just for the inspection alone, I think it's worth the 499 just to get in there and look and know for yourself whether you should replace it or not. Because once you start digging, you, you may find something you didn't know. So it's $500 plus labor and gas in parts, gaskets and stuff. I, I believe the price is, I have to check. I believe it's 499 but I'm not 100% sure. I can check. All right. There's one by Rockford near my home. I go, when I checked into DPF alternatives before, that was the closest one. Yeah. Rockford, Illinois. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's good just for peace of mind. But, yeah, I mean, good on you for doing 900,000 miles on uh, on one DPF. All right, guys. Thanks for your input. You're welcome. Thanks for the yeah. call. Let's go to Arkansas. John, welcome to the program. Hello. If um, if I want to do my own smoke test for my charge air charge air cooler system, I've got a Detroit DD13 2011. What what kind of equipment and what kind of procedure would that be? Do you want to build a well? You need a cheap one. What's that? Uh, do you want to build a cheap one? I mean, really, uh, the 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 cost comes in the smoke machine itself. Everything else really simple. But a good smoke machine yeah, to produce I, enough smoke to get through the system. Pete, can you even get one under a thousand? 
I think ours was two. Two thousand. I I know we paid like fourteen or fifteen hundred. I think. I mean, I guess I do want to do it the cheap way. Yeah, I mean, for a shop, it makes sense to have one. For you know, a person, there's other ways. Just pressure testing the system that works well, also for a lot less money. Yeah, just get the adapter for the turbo, and then just hook it up to a regulator and some shop air. You know, with some uh, soapy water. That's probably the cheaper way to do it. That's how we did it for years okay. before we had smoke yeah. machines. Yeah. Okay. And what's the latest on the fuel improver uh, and the chemical supplement, fuel supplement, is they were working on a fuel improver. Uh, well, not max mileage, I, but the, uh, the guy that was the president of that company that was working with us retired, and the new guy is not interested in working with us. So, oh wow! You've seen that. Okay. Seen that in the business world. You know, you have a great relationship going, and then the person either gets fired, transfers, takes another job, uh, and then you start all over again. Oh, that's okay. All right, thank you. You know, have you ever been like a, a preferred hauler for a company and the people there all love you and they love what you do and all of a sudden new management comes in and now you're out the door? Yeah, sure. It, it boils down to relationships and if they change, the people leave and yeah. it changes every time. Yep. really does. We had Thank a, you for all you do, guys. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Go ahead, Bruce. Kevin... Seven years ago, we had Wetterall food distributors out of Belvernon, PA, and they ran 100 internationals with big cam 300s. And we would see those trucks every time they needed rebuilt, and then we would rebuild them, and uh, we wouldn't see that truck for years. Well, they sold out to, I'm trying to think, Super Value, Super Dollar, something like that. I think Super Value. And super Value. Yeah. Was it Super Value? And, and they ran Max. So there went our biggest fleet customer of 100 trucks gone in a stroke of a pen. Yeah. <laughs> that's, why, that's why you never want to have all your eggs in one basket with one fleet. That is absolutely. And that goes for all business in all circumstances. My favorite story mm-hmm. to tell about this was uh, when I first decided I was going to do seminars and you know, the industry of truck shows and things like that. And it was a big decision because I was terrified of public speaking, but I thought I've, I've just got to do this and get over with it. And for the first year, um, several truck shows, not only did I not get paid, I volunteered to do the seminar free. I paid all my expenses to get to the truck show, didn't ask for any money from anybody to do those seminars. And I did it because I needed to prove myself. Nobody would hire me and pay me to do that. So I had to do it myself. And then eventually I worked up to, they were paying me quite a bit of money to do those seminars, a lot. And then one day I got the phone call that they found somebody else to do it free. And I was out. And it happened to be they were good friends of mine, the guys from ATBS. And now we both do that same program 20-some years later. But I went from doing it free to prove myself to getting paid a lot of money to do it to not doing it at all because somebody else was willing to do it for free. Yeah, that's amazing. 
And it's just Woody, have you ever done any seminars for the group Women in Trucking? I have not. Um, and I know, um, no, I was going to say no, and I just, Ellen. I know Ellen really well. I met yeah. Ellen. Yeah. Uh, it would have been 19, I think 1999. Her husband won the owner operator of the year award from overdrive and that was the first year i was doing those partners in business seminars that's the year i was doing it free uh and i met her at the louisville truck show she was there with her husband to get the award and so I, i've known her a long time but we've never done anything together huh. okay you know i have a show coming up I think in November in Dallas, and they want to know if I want to be a speaker. She runs a great operation. She really, really does. She's, she does. she's built that from nothing, and she's built an incredible organization. We, we've just never done any work together. It, it's not, yeah. I don't want to say it's not a big part of, you know, what my tribe would be. There are really good women owner-operators out there. It's just a much smaller group. Sure. All right, let's uh, let's grab a call. Let's go to Indiana. Chris, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Karen. How are you doing today? Good. I'm on my way to uh, Fort Wayne to go tow a truck back to Nashville. But in the early 70s, when the ATA was trying to increase the overall length law for tractor trailers, they were getting constant pushback from the Teamsters. The Teamsters just wouldn't budge, and they kept blocking every attempt to make trucks bigger. The APA came up with the idea of the cab under concept and got strict trailers to build three prototypes for the sole purpose of making the Pinto membership angry and telling the leadership to allow the trucks to get bigger. Got it. This was. A, two after, yeah, go ahead. Mark one and Mark two came in, came in both single drive after versions. One was a single sphere that could also pull a pup trailer. That was a Mark two. The Mark one had a two sphere axles, and they carried swap bodies that you backed up to the dock and drove out from underneath. The Mark III, that I've never been able to find a photograph of, had a fifth wheel to pull semi-trailers. So the one I've seen, and I'm looking at some Im images of it now, it's a two axle, um, very, very flat I mean, the the whole vehicle is only slightly bigger than the 24-inch wheels. I mean, this thing is so flat because it backs under a typical semi-trailer here. Uh, fairly typical. Looks like it's a little modified because actually it's got doors on the front too, um, which is interesting. So yeah. you could... That body has four legs that can be attached, folded up at, in the dock, and then the drives out from underneath. Yeah, or or you could pull into the dock with this one. You would open the front doors yeah, up and pull straight into the dock with this one. Um, this was actually, this one was made by a company called Steinwinter. One word, Steinwinter in 1983. Oh, the, Europe, the European version. Yeah. They did one in Europe. Yep, that's the one I'm looking at here. And it is, yeah, you can see it's all all European lettering on all the trailers that it's pulling. But that one is, that's the one I've always seen, and it's just bizarre looking. Yeah, the American version, uh, the front of the swap bodies were somewhat tapered for aerodynamics. <laughs> yeah. Um, crazy idea, though. Yeah, I but would 
I would never want to drive one of those. That just looks awful. They were never meant to go in production. All they were meant to do was make the Kingsford drivers angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you remember the um, the the tractors, I remember where the uh, PIE had probably the most extreme. UPS had some too. Those single axle cab over day cabs that were so short. It looked like if you hit the brakes too hard, you'd flip over forward. I know what you're talking about. I'm really screaming to this kid. I wasn't born until 74, so that's kind of before my time. Yeah. Now, when, when I first started, I we our terminal was down in Richfield, Ohio, where all the LTL carriers were. So uh, there were a ton of those around. Plus, that my dad drove all that equipment forever. You got time for a second item? Sure, go ahead. In the early days of EGR, when I used to work for Mesquia Valley Transportation, they came up with a policy of uh, every 100,000 to 150,000 miles, they would bring the trucks into the terminal, completely dismantle the EGR system, and physically spread out all the carbon in the truck. So if hey. the driver managers locked the truck from making it in, the shop had the power to re-dispatch the truck under force dispatch to a terminal and operation yeah. to put it. You know what? They uh, went from a 25% failure rate to a 10% failure rate. Yeah, and, and Mesilla Valley was just proactive and forward-thinking. They were proactive about fuel economy, which most fleets aren't. They were proactive about this because it affected cost, the maintenance cost, the downtime, the loss in, in fuel economy. But, Bruce, this was that that's the same thing you guys did originally. It was you, you took the entire emission systems apart and cleaned everything, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you you had yeah. developed that years oh, yeah. ago. Yeah. But the owner of the company gave the shop the power to force dispatch to truck into a terminal after 150,000 miles past the last. Well, he, he had the right idea. That was the only way back then you could keep those emissions running properly. Yeah. Now I don't even worry about it. No. Nope. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, looks like we're going to wrap this up for the day. We're out of calls. Any Anybody want to close with anything? Yep. No, I don't got anything. All right. The This is a strange week. I think most of the shows for this week are pre-recorded. So this, I think this is my last live show of the week. And next week is still up in the air. Uh, we're going to start heading back north probably sometime Sunday just not sure where we're going or when we're going to get there uh, so we'll keep you updated but I do believe we have all new content this week it's just not live thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power I'm pretty sure we'll do it again next week we'll still be on the road but uh, looks like our, our new I? mobile setup is doing good go ahead Bruce I uh, I will be leaving the office right now and I'm teaching my three grandchildren, two, four, and six years old, to ski the rest of the oh, week. Oh, how I'll fun. Down and tell you ride. So. How fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. So, I'll bet. Being they live in Texas, I don't see them very often. So uh, I will not be available for a week. That's exciting. That's exciting. All right. You go and enjoy that. All right. All right. Take care. We will talk you, to you again. You see that picture I, I, I text you? Uh, oh, hold on. Let me go look at it. I didn't see it. <laughs> Let me see that. 
Yep. I, you know, you can't look tell. The, for, look at the spray coming off the feet. <laughs> I was just going to say, most people would look at this and not really know what they were looking at. It's it's Bruce behind a boat in the uh, before the 90s. And you can't, I can tell that you're barefooting. Because if you weren't barefooting, yeah. I'd be able to see skis. And all I can see is spray. But, uh, just That's 38 for, miles an hour behind a ski nautique on the Allegheny River north of Pittsburgh. And uh, 38 miles an hour was my speed to barefoot without skis. I think I could do it at about 36 um, was where I was, and it was tough. The faster you went, the the easier some things got, but the crashes were just spectacular at those speeds. Looking at this picture, (laughs) I'm tempted to pick up my phone and call my chiropractor. (laughs) <laughs> well, I had, uh, I was learning with a guy that played for Penn State, and uh, we both had some nasty falls, horrendous so, headaches. I went to the chiropractor, and he fixed mine for $36. <laughs> the guy from Penn State went to the hospital and cost him 1200 <laughs> So I'm curious, what Bruce, because... Your, your skull is... Your skull is five sections, and it separates the skull and lets the cerebral fluid come through, and it's pushing on your outer skin like when you would bend over. It and hurts. the way the chiropractor, he, he would just push the uh, sections of the skull back together. And I'm it, still seeing that same chiropractor, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, the other thing that always happened, and it was so bizarre, is your, your eyelids would, like, flip over. Oh, they, yeah. They would like your eyelids would like flip inside out. You would hit the water face first so hard. So mm-hmm. I'm curious here because you're not on a boom. You're at the end of a rope. How did you get yeah. started? Step off. Step off. Oh, you, the, you stepped uh, off. Okay. Cypress Garden Ski. Mm-hmm. You stepped yeah. off. I, I tried yeah, I all of those. Um, what I ended up doing was uh, stepping up off of a kneeboard, sitting on a kneeboard. Yeah. And uh-huh. I'd put my feet up over the rope and I'd lean way back on the board and get it up to speed and then, you know, put yeah. start to plant your feet and step up. But, you know, at 36 miles an hour, your feet would touch the water and a millisecond later, your face would hit it at high speed. The uh, I read in one of the water ski magazines that said, when you think you're going to fall, close your eyes, tuck your shoulder, and or tuck yeah, your right. chin and roll your shoulder. I said, I don't even have a chance to no, close my eyes. Exactly. It happens and so you fast. Could always, yeah. <laughs> you could always tell because the whites of your eyes go red. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. I, I did have, uh, you mentioned Cypress Gardens. I had a pair of Cypress Gardens shoe skis, they called them. The ski itself was yeah. barely bigger than the boot. Oh, I, I remember that. And that's how I learned mm-hmm. uh, to barefoot. I, I used those for a long time. So anybody that's learning and they're going to step off, like I was left foot forward, so my left foot would be in the ski. You take your right foot, you roll your toes back, you turn your foot on about a 30-degree angle, pointing your toes towards your left leg, <laughs> and this is your right foot. And But you have to put it out a foot further than your other one because right. in the amount of time it took – to step out of the ski and plant that foot, then that foot would come back. The right foot would come back and be level with the left foot. So if you had your feet even, it was too late. So you had to plant it about a foot ahead. Uh, guy from, his name was Samuel, Vimco Macaroni. 
in Pittsburgh. He told me, gave me that trick. And those little tricks and little things in life that people tell you that you remember that make it possible to do things. Yep, that's for sure. And then the other thing you got to remember is it, the way I was doing it, you're bouncing along the water on an out-of-control kneeboard at 36 or 38 miles an hour. That's a wild ride alone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was. I uh, When I used to rebuild the wrecked Corvettes, I had a 69 Corvette hood, and I was going to cut the center out of it and use that hood to do that and <laughs> figure out where you would sit on the hood. Yeah. Uh, crazy. But I never did it. Never did. So. All right. Okay. I was going to send you another picture of when I was 16 surfing in North Carolina with my huge surfboards where I weighed 132 pounds, but I hate that picture. Ah, okay. All right. We, uh, uh, all right. We're going to wrap this up. Good stuff. We'll, uh, we'll see you back here next week. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.